one of the all-time great Olympic athletes, well before any of our time, uh, but it was a man named Eric Little. And Eric was very famous in his own time, back in the 1920s and 30s. He was made famous all over again, I think in the, in the 80s, when his story was told in a movie called Chariots of Fire, which won Best Picture. So if you've seen that movie, you may be familiar with at least part of Eric Little's story, that he was a devout Christian. He was the son of missionaries. And one of his cherished Christian convictions was a refusal to compete in sports on Sundays. And that became a hot-button issue for him in the 1924 Olympics in Paris because Little's race, the 100-meter dash, was scheduled to be run on a Sunday. Now, surely, people thought, he'll make an exception for a chance to win the gold medal, which he was favored to do. Surely, he'll make an exception in this conviction because his country is depending on him. But Eric Little never flinched. He would not compete in any event that forced him to betray his beliefs. So instead, Little entered into an entirely different kind of race, the 400 meters, a race he was surely incapable of preparing for on such short notice. But if you've seen the movie, you know the outcome. To everyone's shock, Eric Little won gold in the 400 meters and set a new world record in the process. Now, believe it or not, this is actually the least interesting thing about his life. And uh, if I can remember, I'm going to share a little more about his story next week. But needless to say, Eric Little was a man who was so strong in his conviction that he built his entire life around his faith. Everything about him took shape around his commitment to the Lord. The most important thing in his life, in his own words, he called it complete surrender to the Lord and his will. And therefore, he didn't flinch when the opportunity came to reject his convictions. And I just have to wonder for myself, maybe for you too, if we have convictions that strong, if our commitment to the Lord outweighs and overrules all of our other lesser commitments in this life. That's a great question for us to wrestle with. Y'all, six years ago, give or take, when the idea of starting Harvest Church was, was just beginning to hatch, it was very much in its infancy, we wanted to establish up front a very clear and simple vision that reflected our truest and deepest convictions. What is it that we want Harvest Church to be that everything else would orbit around, that everything else would be built upon? To answer the question, why are we here? Why would we start a new church? And what we came up with, our vision, really has stuck. We see it every time we walk through these doors on the front wall. We exist to grow and multiply disciples of Jesus. This is what we aspire to be. This is what we've committed to spend our lives doing. This is the conviction on which Harvest Church stands. And in fact, this is the reason why we called it Harvest Church. It comes from John chapter 4, where Jesus just lays this out for us in incredible imagery. This, this is the same scripture, uh, some of y'all remember this, the very same scripture we preached on day one, uh, May the 7th, 2017, the first time we met at the Craft Center on Rice Road, we preached from John chapter 4. Uh, this very same text and the very same point, and I don't mind doing it again, 
Uh, and in fact, we ought to do it fairly regularly to come back to center as to who we are and why we're here. And so we're in John 4 today. And y'all, I just want to tell you, I, my encouragement is that you might read John 4 on your own. We will not have time to go through verse by verse the whole chapter today. But I just want to say up front, what happens in this chapter is quite scandalous. And so you can read the whole chapter on your own, but the first portion I'm just going to give us as a summary to try to explain the context here before we get into the latter part of the chapter. But what happens in John 4, Jesus and his disciples are passing through a land called Samaria, a place that Jewish folks typically avoided because of great racial and religious conflict there. But they're going through Samaria, and they stop outside of a town right by the water well that belonged to the town. Jesus takes a seat to rest while his disciples leave and go into town to try to buy some lunch for them. Well, so as Jesus is sitting there alone, a woman comes from the town to draw water from that well, and Jesus asks her for a drink. And this begins an incredible conversation. Now, none of that for us may seem scandalous on the surface, but this woman, right off the bat, simply cannot believe that Jesus would even speak with her. And she says that to him. He is a Jewish man. She's a Samaritan woman. The cultural and racial divides ran very deep, such that a Jewish man like Jesus would never even entertain a conversation with a person like this, typically. But Jesus engages. And what we find out on top of this, not only is she a Samaritan woman, but she's also a moral failure. This is a, this is a moral outcast, a woman who is deep in sexual sin. And something, of course, Jesus knows miraculously all about. He knows everything about this woman who he otherwise has never met. But the most stunning part of this conversation is, in spite of all these things that would seemingly stand against her, her, uh, her gender, her nationality, her morality, things that Jesus might recoil from, a good Jewish religious man, no, instead Jesus draws near, and he offers this woman what he calls living water. Not physical water that is drawn out of a well, but living water. Something so wonderful that having tasted it, Jesus says, you'll never even thirst again. Jesus is offering this woman eternal life. And this woman, she's, she's somewhat clued in to the magnitude of this conversation because she says to Jesus, okay, yeah, when Messiah comes, he'll explain all these things to us. To which Jesus replies, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Very dramatic. Now, that's the first part of the story, which really just sets up the second part, okay? And so look what happens next with me. John chapter 4, verse 27. At this point, Jesus' disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
So consider what's happening now. The woman has left her water pot. She's left the well to run back into the town, the town called Sikar, and to tell the townspeople there what's just happened to her. And the townspeople begin to listen, and then in a rush, they leave town to go see for themselves. Well, the disciples, when she leaves, the disciples are there, and they've got food, and they're begging Jesus to eat. They know he's famished. But Jesus, in the midst of all this, makes one of the most profound and important statements in history. Now, Jesus said things that are a lot more famous and more quotable than this, but I'm not sure he ever said anything more important. Jesus says to the disciples, I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is Jesus declaring the reason why he came to earth. This is what I'm here for. Jesus is saying, this is my necessary food. Nothing, that, nothing physical that I put into my body, but something deep down, a central mission and purpose that animated everything about him, that filled and sustained him. This is the reason he came. So what is it that he's talking about? What is this necessary food that the disciples can't see or discern? Well, they don't understand, right? And we might not either, except that Jesus elaborates. Very graciously, he tells us what he means in verse 35. Jesus goes on, he says, Do you not say, there are yet four months... And then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, if you're the son of God, you get to switch metaphors, okay? Living water to start, then he speaks of food, and then he turns to agriculture. Jesus is allowed to do those kind of things. And we should be grateful that, uh, that Jesus uh, doesn't put everything up on the top shelf. He speaks in ways that... Hopefully anybody can understand. He speaks of agriculture here, a harvest. And here's what he says, both to the disciples and to us. Y'all, this is life-changing for those of us who receive it. Before we, we go back to the text, though, I want to say, I, what Jesus is talking about here is not something beyond us. It's not something ethereal that exists only in the heavens and, and only for the high-minded. He's talking about real-life discipleship. That is to learn and grow and know Jesus Christ, to walk with him in this life. And so he speaks of it in terms of the harvest. And the harvest, I think it's very clear, is made up of the great many people who are going to come to faith in Christ and walk as his disciples. And so Jesus says, I'm giving this task of discipleship to you. The sowing and the reaping of the harvest is not just his to do, but it's ours as well. That's what's happening here. So back in verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? In other words, you don't have to be a farmer to look out at a field, a crop, and it's all very low to the ground and underdeveloped. Maybe, you're, it's, maybe it's June, and you know the crop won't bear its produce until October, perhaps. 
Well, any of us can look at that field and say, the harvest is not ready. You don't have to be an expert to know the difference. But then Jesus says, this is the harvest I'm talking about. Behold, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. That is to say, the harvest is right here and now. It's not yet far off. It's not at another time in the distant future. It's here and it's now. That's the kind of harvest Jesus had in mind. Not something the disciples would have to wait for, but something that was present and opportune. Uh, Y'all, a lot of commentators over the years have pointed this out from this account, and I think it's very likely to be true. Remember, as Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples, the woman, the initial conversation, this woman, she's left her water pot, she's gone into town to, to wrangle together the townspeople. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? And they all left to come and see. And so as Jesus says, lift up your eyes to the disciples and look that the harvest is here, it's very likely that he's actually literally pointing his disciples to real people who are making their way up the hill, perhaps, to the well to meet him. The harvest is right here and right now. And he makes this application for all of us in verse 36. You see in verse 36 again, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So if we're at all confused by what Jesus means with this illustration, the sowing, the planting, and the reaping, the harvesting, he's talking about making disciples. To sow or to plant is simply to point people to eternal life in Jesus Christ, to share his word and his grace with them, and hopefully also to embody that grace so that others may see and hear and know who Christ is through those who know him. That's what it is to sow in this case. And then to reap is the joy that some of us get to receive in actually seeing people come to faith in Christ after we've shared with them. So we plant the word of Jesus and his grace, and sometimes we even get to reap. We get to see the harvest of those who receive him by faith. This is the great work that Jesus is talking about. And my hope is that we'll see the great connection here because Jesus so wants his disciples to get this. When Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, this is the will and the work. It's the harvest. It's what Jesus had just been doing with that woman at the well in the conversation. It's sharing grace. It's offering life, the forgiveness of sins, so that people might have life in the name of Christ. And y'all, this, now this is just me. Uh, sometimes when I th- if there's a hard job that needs to be done, a lot of us, maybe if you're like me, I'm just going to do it myself. Unless it's something under the hood of the car, you know, if, it, if it's you know, something that I can't handle. I'd rather do it myself. That way I know it gets done right. I mean, a lot of us are this way. I don't want to delegate it because it might get done wrong. Now, if Jesus were going to bring salvation to the world, that's something he alone can accomplish, right? He's got to die on the cross to provide that to sinners. But this great work of the harvest, Jesus seems actually quite eager to give it to his disciples, to bring them in on it. This would be one of those things, perhaps, that Jesus could say, listen, y'all, y'all, you... Plan the events, okay? Order, the, you know, cater the food. 
take care of the details. Let me do the spiritual stuff. All right? Let me share the word. But y'all, he's entrusting something to his disciples here. He's entrusting something significant to them. It's the work of the harvest. The very same thing he came to do, he has now called us to point people to it. It's not separated out. It's not Jesus doing all the, the work and we just kind of stand by and watch. Jesus says, no, you sow. You reap. You get to participate. When Jesus told, uh, there was a man named Zacchaeus, a wee little man, if y'all remember that story in Luke. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, the son of man, speaking of himself, Jesus, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he calls us to participate in his very same mission. We get to point people to salvation in the Son. Jesus has brought us to himself that we might be saved, but he never leaves us there. He sends us back out. Back into the harvest that we may participate in his saving work. That we may point others to life in him. Y'all, that is an amazing privilege and responsibility. We are not worthy of it. And yet by his grace, he sends us and he equips us. He calls us. We have the privilege of sowing and reaping. Of pointing people to Christ. And even at times, we see them receive Christ and we get to celebrate alongside them. So when Jesus says, this is my necessary food, he's speaking of the harvest as his mission, his purpose. But he never leaves it in the first person singular. Because right after that he says, lift up your eyes and look. The harvest is here. Your mission is right in front of you. Y'all, after the resurrection at the end of the book of John, Jesus comes to his disciples alive again. And he says, as the Father sent me, so I also send you. We get to share in this. So what are we doing here? Why, why does Harvest Church exist? That's a question that I had to wrestle with, that we all wrestled with. The core team that met in our living room six years ago now this month. What are we doing here? It's not to saturate the market. It's not because Jackson needs more churches per se. We've got plenty of churches. No, the reason we're here is because what Jesus Christ said then is still true now. The fields are white for harvest. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said elsewhere, and the workers are few, so we ought to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest. And that's us. By his grace, that's us. And so this is not primarily an organization. It's not a building. It's not a program. We're talking about the souls of people that Jesus Christ came to save through his life and his death and his resurrection. And we are among them. Not only those saved by him, but now those sent out in his name. And so y'all, as long as there are people who do not know him by faith, as long as there are people who are not walking in his grace, we need more churches, not fewer. We need more committed disciples whose great purpose and joy is to sow and reap for his glory. This should be our necessary food as well. Y'all, my greatest joy in life, my great reason for living should be to know Jesus and to make him known. Or you could say it like this. We exist to grow and multiply disciples of Jesus. Now, 
that part we just read used to be my favorite part of the story. And I hesitate to even say favorite. I mean, everything in the Bible is, is of God. It's perfect. I'm not sure favorite is the right word. But I'm more inclined, I'm more drawn uh, to the, uh, the latter part of the story in this account, what we haven't yet read, because we see the application of everything Jesus just taught. And y'all, this is a very backward account in so many ways. Jesus encounters a woman that by all uh, you know, cultural and religious and moral standards, he shouldn't, even, he shouldn't even look her direction. And yet he comes to her. He offers her grace. The story ends in a backward way, though, too. Because even the disciples, the ones receiving this lesson, Jesus is telling them what to do, what they're called to be. It's not the disciples in this account who actually live out the message. It's the Samaritan woman. She's the one who actually puts it into practice right before our very eyes. And we see that in verse 39. Look with me at John 4, verse 39. From that city, John tells us, many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. There's a problem uh, for me I, you know, I, this is not a secret. If y'all know me, if you've ever heard me preach before, I try to say this frequently. I've, I try really hard to be a nice person and a good person. And I try, even though I know it's wrong, I, I take pride in being a nice, friendly, good person. And so when I see people in the Bible like this woman clearly held up for us as a model that we're meant to imitate, it's difficult for me just as it would have been very difficult for Jesus' disciples that day to see her as someone they're meant to emulate and imitate. Right? And y'all, one of the things that the, the gospel, the good news of God's grace is meant to do for people like me, in that case, is to humble us to the ground. I am not good, and I'm not any better than her. But y'all, let's just play this out for a moment, okay? If, if you're like me at all, if you like to think of yourself as good, or at least you try very hard to be good, here's a woman in this story who by all accounts was entirely discredited. She did not belong as the model, the application. Remember the culture that she's a part of here. She's immoral, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan. Strike one, strike two, strike three, she's out. How could a person like this be a credible witness for Jesus, and yet she's the model? She didn't know very much. She probably had no Bible verses memorized. She couldn't handle a PowerPoint presentation. But what she knew, what very little she knew and had experienced, she took back into town and she beckoned people to come and see for themselves. Come see a man who told me everything about me. She pointed them to Christ. And a great number of her neighbors received life in his name because she was willing to go and tell. Now, there two things stand out right here, okay? Back to my point I made a minute ago about myself, maybe about you too. 
This is something we have to grasp for ourselves and for the world around us, y'all. No one, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one's beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. The person in this story, this woman at the well, she is as low down on the ladder as a person can get. And yet what we see in Jesus Christ, that when Jesus looks upon her in her great need, He looks right into her parched soul and He offers her living water. The water of life. He knows the depth of her sin and need. He's not ignorant to what she is and what she's done, but He doesn't recoil from this woman. He draws near. He moves toward her. He extends to this poor sinner all of His grace. And if you're a sinner like her, if you're a sinner like me, then there can be no better news in all the world. That the goal for this woman was not clean your act up, make your life right, then come back to the well and we'll talk. No. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. And so just like this woman, to receive Christ requires no prerequisite activity for us. Nothing you have to do first No cleaning up, no getting right in advance. We simply trust in Him and receive what He has come to give us. Living water. A water so rich and so wonderful that he who drinks it will never thirst again. That is life from God and life with God that has no end. That's what Jesus Christ has come to give. And so first thing, no no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And then secondly, anyone can be a witness to His grace. This woman is a witness to the grace of God. And so here's the truth, y'all. We can safely say, not, not to puff ourselves up, it's just the truth. The woman in this story has less pedigree, less education, less moral reputation than any of us. We're better positioned, in some sense, than she ever was. Right here where we sit. There was nothing about her life that gave her credibility apart from the fact that she had encountered the Lord and wanted others to see Him too. We're more qualified than her, in some sense. I hope we see that. But y'all, what this woman lacked in qualification, she made up for in desire. Whoever this man was, She wanted everybody else to see Him too. She wanted everybody to know Him in the way that she was coming to know Him. And so we can acknowledge this, that on one hand, all of us right here, we've got more knowledge, we've got more resources than this woman did. She didn't have a a Bible like we can hold in our hands. She didn't possess uh, the the knowledge of Scripture in a way that, that even at the most elementary level most of us do. We're more qualified than her in in those ways. But here's the question that I have to wrestle with. I've got more qualification, but do I have the same desire? Do I possess a conviction so strong that everything else in my life takes shape around it? A conviction so strong that I would go and tell anybody and everybody who would listen, come and see this man for yourselves. Y'all, if we think back for one second about Eric Little, the point of his conviction was not really about sports on Sundays, right? 
Surely that wasn't the only thing he really cared about. The thing for him was a settled commitment that said, Jesus is Lord over my whole life. To know Him and to make Him known is the reason I'm alive. That's why he said that his greatest goal in life was complete surrender to the Lord and His will. Therefore, when an opportunity came up to neglect or override his convictions, it wasn't even a thought to entertain. Because a prior and settled commitment had already been made. He belonged to Jesus. His higher love, his higher devotion was already fixed. And therefore, his decisions played out accordingly. Y'all, God has called all of us into a life of settled conviction. That it's not, it's not enough for us to kind of pay lip service to Jesus to come to church and to try our best to be good. That might fly in, in, in the, the midst of culture in which we live, but that is not why God put us here. Jesus Christ, His heart, His goal, is that we might know Him and make Him known. That we might joyfully sow and reap together. The abundant life we receive in Christ, it grows inward, but it also propels us outward. That's why we're here. And so Harvest Church is not just a name we happen to like. We didn't just think it'll look good on a t-shirt. It's our vision. It's our mission. Wrapped up in a single word. Because it was Jesus Christ who says, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white. They are ripe and ready here and now for harvest. That's why we're here. And I pray by God's grace, that's why we're all here. To know him and make him known. To grow and multiply. Disciples of Jesus. Y'all, I want to encourage us as we close. If, if the Lord would work on your heart in any way, and you'd like for us to talk with you, to pray with you, perhaps even about what it is to know Christ as this woman and her neighbors came to do, to receive life in His name. If, if that's something that you want to know more about or that you'd like to receive in Christ even today, um, that's why we're here. And so we've, we've instituted this recently that here in the prayer time or in the song after the sermon, if, if you uh, would like to respond, like to pray, like to talk, I'm asking our, our pastors Evan and Aaron to stand by the back doors right there. You can just slip out and, and take one of them by the hand and, uh, and talk, pray about anything that the Lord might be doing in your life and in your heart. But y'all, we have this joy, and I pray that we, we hold it uh, as, the, as the great conviction on which everything else is built. Jesus Christ has come for us. He has saved us in His grace, and He has now sent us out to be ambassadors of His grace. There is no greater joy or privilege than this. Would you pray with me? Father, um, would, you, would you be merciful to us, Father, in these moments here this morning? Lord, I, I cannot speak for everyone. I certainly can speak, though, for myself, for my own heart. That um, my conviction for life, what you've given me, Lord, and called me into, 
Father, my conviction waxes and wanes. It is not as strong as it ought to be. And so often, Father, I'm, I'm drawn inward. I love myself. And um, I pray, Lord, that, uh, that you in love, Father, might expose that in me this morning and in any of us. That, Father, if, if we are... Um, if we are in any way self-centered, if we have missed uh, the, the awesome responsibility and the joyful privilege of what we've seen in your word today, Lord, that you would draw us out of ourselves right now. Lord, help us to look away from ourselves and to look to Jesus, our Savior, who can only save us, Lord, because he has taken the full weight of our sin upon himself. He can only save us, Lord, because his grace is uh, living water where all other water runs dry. And Lord, he has saved us through the outpouring of his mercy. Lord, help us to see in Christ the fullness of of your love and your goodness, looking away from ourselves and receiving him. And Lord, while we're in that place, Lord, lift up our eyes to see the harvest among us, Lord, to see the community around us, to see, Lord, the great need of the world in which we live. And our great need, Lord, is not political merely. It's not social reform, Lord. It is a grace that can cover sin and redeem sinners. And Father, I pray that you will make us so enamored with Jesus Christ and his necessary food, his mission for himself and for us, that Lord, we'd build our whole lives around it. And Lord, I pray that um, that it would be for us not, uh, not um, something we, are, we feel like we must be dragged into, Lord, but something we joyfully enter into. Because we are so captured by your love that we want nothing more than for the world to see, to hear, and to know. Father, help us. Uh, we, we, we will forever uh, fall short of uh, this great ambition. We will always be struggling, Lord, to see it through. But by your grace, Lord, it is being done and it will be done. And so help us, Lord, to depend on you and to always, always be looking, Lord, to Christ, his love, both his love for us and his love for the world in which he's called us. Um, we thank you and we ask, Lord, for a strength beyond ourselves to live with this kind of conviction. In Jesus' name. Amen.